Right. For the rest of us, we are going to be here. We're going to be carrying on with our study in John's first epistle. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please open them up to 1 John. 1 John. And we're going to be in verses 5 to 7 today. Before I begin, I'm, I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you for your word to us, that it's clear, it's concise. Everything that it treats, it treats with excellence. There's no spot or blemish or mixture in your word at all. It's holy and it's pure. Everything it treats, it does so accurately. It's a word of truth. And so, Lord, I pray that as we expound your word today, as we open it up, that it would speak to us, Lord God, and it would shine a light on anything in us which is dark, anything in us where there is confusion, anything in us maybe when we're walking in a level of darkness. I pray your word would shine a light on it today. And, Father, that we'd come to a place of knowing you in our walk. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so... We're in verses 5 to 7 today, and I'm going to read the, the literal translation from the original language to you. Not in the Greek, but I'll, I'll translate it for you, because I think it, it clarifies some of the emphasis that maybe the English language doesn't carry. But we've got here, from verse 5 to 7 in the original language, we've got, and it is this, the message which was heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God light is and darkness in him there is none none at all if we say that fellowship we have with him and in the darkness we walk then we lie and we do not do the truth if in the light we walk just as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins this Sunday we're moving out of John's introduction and into one of his main arguments one of the main themes of this first Johannine epistle and I think this commentator has it best if it rains it rains uh, but if you do have umbrellas and raincoats keep them at the ready it's starting to look a little bit threatening isn't it but I think this commentator, a guy called Robert Yarnborough, um, says it better than I could ever do about John's first epistle. He says this, If one to three John leaves the disciple who studies them with any single lasting impression, it is the grandeur and centrality of God. Part of this, part of this is the sheer volume of references to him. There's hardly a verse or even a clause anywhere that does not name a person of the Godhead, a divine attribute or a divine work. These letters are not simply theological, as one might say that ale, uh, say that ale is alcoholic. They are rather theology distillate, analogous to the highest proof grain alcohol that is highly flammable and intoxicating even in small amounts. God mainly Father and Son, but occasionally also Holy Spirit, suffuses every situation John envisions. Each piece of counsel he issues, every sentiment he conveys, each affirmation he sets forth. So what we're studying today is pure, grade, God-centered theology. Amen? Amen. This is the truth. 
And this is how we have to order our lives as Christians, is that the Bible teaches us firstly, not about us, but about God. And therefore, in our worship and our knowledge about the world, we want to start with God and work out, not start with us and work up. Okay, Always best to start top down with our theology. And we heard last week about how this letter, this epistle, was likely written to a group of house churches, which are located in modern-day Turkey, near Ephesus. And that these uh, churches had been having their ears tickled a little bit by some false teachers. And these false teachers didn't believe Jesus had actually come in the flesh. That only that he appeared uh, to be human, but he wasn't actually uh, human in the way that we are. They were teaching that Jesus definitely was from God, that his teaching was good, but that Jesus himself wasn't actually God. And therefore they, def- they denied the Trinity, like many Christian cults today. When we think of the Jehovah's Witnesses or other uh, sects that deny the Trinity, this is the same false teaching that uh, these teachers in, in the first John epistle uh, were dealing with. So John is writing to these churches to remind them of the gospel which they had first believed, which came from the apostles who had actually physically been with Jesus himself. John was talking, wasn't he, about fellowship. And there's that Greek word koinonia, which you will have heard. Even if you've never studied Greek, you'll know that word for fellowship, which is being knit together, being brought together in unity. And John says that this koinonia, this fellowship, it's built upon agreement to the truth. Did you catch that? Fellowship in the Christian worldview doesn't happen for fellowship's sake. Fellowship doesn't happen and unity doesn't happen because we want unity. And this is the great failing, I think, of ecumenism, which is basically this kind of whole church unity movement, is that we throw doctrine out the window. We say, oh, well, doctrine divides. You know, we, we've spent hundreds of years fighting over doctrine. Let's just leave it to one side and let's have unity. Now, the problem is that type of unity, which casts aside doctrine, is a unity that the New Testament knows nothing of. You see, the unity in the New Testament was built around doctrine. It was built upon agreement to the truth of the Word of God, not around this kind of soft, flimsy idea that we should just all be mates and get along. <laughs> and and sadly, this is what I see out in the charismatic world today. This is what I see time and time again. Uh, I've been a pastor for 10 years now. And I see this happening all the time. There's this idea that, you know what, doctrine, it doesn't really matter. It's a side issue. Let's not get caught in a bit. Let's leave that to the theologians. We just love Jesus, don't we? We just love Jesus. Jesus loves me. Problem is, which Jesus? How do you define Jesus other than through the Bible? And the Bible is cover to cover, chock-a-block with doctrine. It's a book of doctrine. So if you're reading your Bible and you're not getting anything about doctrine from it, I don't know how you're reading it, but you're doing it wrong. (laughs) So fellowship, koinonia, unity is built upon truth and agreement to that truth. Without agreement upon the truth, there is no real fellowship. There is no real unity. And shockingly, what John actually said was, hey, listen, if you don't agree upon this Jesus who we are preaching, who we have seen, who we have touched, you don't have fellowship with God. You only have fellowship with God through the apostolic witness. That's the 12 apostles plus Paul of who Jesus actually was. 
That's how you get fellowship with God. And I think this is really key because I think in this day and age, there is just such a kind of lack of understanding about clarity and about doctrine and about biblical truth that people tend to have this kind of understanding. Well, you know, this church over here preaches this particular revelation about who God was and they got a real strong revelation of God's love and then this church over here they they carry a real revelation of God's truth and and it's good because I'll just hop and skip between the two and that helps me because I end up getting a kind of nuanced and full version of who God is. Problem with that is is that Paul believed that any gospel other than the one that he delivered and preached and that is written down in the New Testament is another gospel altogether. He said this in Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are even some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's a strong language. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Strong stuff. Whenever we read the Bible, we've got to be aware that this book is like no other book. It has one author, but many scribes. Did you catch that? One author, many scribes. If you can find yourself a space under a tree, you can do it. We've got a little shower. All of scripture is God-breathed. You know where that comes from? Anybody take a guess at where that's from? Which book? It's a good memory verse. There's one in Hebrews, which is Hebrews 4.12, which is the word of God is living. This one is 2 Timothy 3.16. It's a good memory verse. All scripture, you may have it in the NIV, is given by inspiration, but the ESV is the best, actually. It says all scripture is God-breathed. It's literally breathed out by God. There isn't any verse in the whole canon of scripture which escapes this truth. There's no lesser books. There is no passage of scripture that's merely human. All of it is God-breathed. However, at the same time as the whole of scripture being God-breathed, it's also written by human authors, if this makes sense. So God chose to use people, fallible people, in the writing of the Holy Scriptures fallible men used by the infallible God to create an infallible result. This is amazing. This is what, like when we look at Jesus and we consider that he is one hand all man. He's all human. On the other hand, he's all God. Just in the same way, your Bible, one divine author, multiple human scribes. In many ways, the Bible is a parallel of the Jesus Christ it preaches. Each scribe that is human writer of the Bible, has their own very human qualities. They've got their own idiosyncrasies in their style of writing, their own method of communication. For example, the Apostle Paul is widely considered to be one of the greatest thinkers of antiquity. That's not just amongst religious scholars, Jews or Christians, but literally of the whole pantheon of thinkers in the ancient world, Paul is considered as a luminary, as a light. The way that he thought, the way that he uh, communicated his ideas was robust it was incredible and if you've read the book of Romans you'll see how he develops these hugely complex monstrous arguments and he employs all sorts of logical and literary devices 
And that's why, for years, I never got the Book of Romans. Because I just used to dip in and out of it and pull out a passage here or there or a favourite verse. But it's only when you read it in its entirety that you really get the Apostle Paul for who he was and for who God raised him to be. And the Apostle John is very similar. Not in the same way as Paul, but in his own very specific way, he develops ideas, big themes. And he does this through this method that we call amplification. Amplification is a bit different than Paul, where Paul goes premise, 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 conclusion. John does this thing where he's got several themes like life, light, love, and he just talks around these separate themes time and time and time again, coming at them from different angles until you really get a kind of full bodied idea of what he's getting at. And today's theme is the theme of light God is light. So we have in verse 5 him beginning this whole theme. If you're there in verse 5, you you read these words. You'll say, um, in the English, you've got, this is the message that we've heard from him, if you're in the ESV. In the original language, it's, and this is it. And this is it, the message we've heard from him. John connects these verses with the first few verses. He connects it with the Jesus who they have heard, seen, and touched with their hands. I want you to catch this. The apostles, the 12 apostles of Jesus plus Paul, what these apostles did, they simply proclaimed what they'd already been given by Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate apostle, right? That's what we call Jesus. He is the ultimate apostle, the apostle of apostles, because he was sent into the world by God and he delivered to the world what was given to him by God. And in the same way, his apostles take from him and deliver what was given to them by Jesus. You see, the true apostles of Christ saw that their job was to faithfully preach what had already been given to them. Not to go seeking for fresh revelation. And this here, my friends, is a distinction between true apostles and false apostles. False apostles always have fresh revelation. They've always got a new teaching that they're attempting to peddle. Whereas true apostles, they fight to preserve the gospel that they were handed at first. Always be aware of teaching that presents itself as fresh and new and something different. It's a new way. There's a good saying that I think rings true, which is that all Fresh revelations and new teachings are just rebadged old heresies. Look for those who are seeking to teach you what was delivered to them through the New Testament in the first place. Not for people who claim to have fresh revelation. So he says, this is the message that we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. God is light. God is light. Not God has light or does light, but he is light. And this, I think, is a reason why those false teachers should be afraid. They should be quaking in their boots. Because this revelation of God as light is perhaps simultaneously the most beautiful and the most terrifying thing that we can know of God. He is light and there is 
no darkness in him at all. In fact, in the original language, it doesn't just say there's no darkness in him. There's a double negative in the Greek. There's no darkness in him. None at all. No blemish. No imperfection. There's no. Tr- there's all truth and no lie. I want you to take a moment to just imagine the brightest light that you've ever seen. I remember once, it's probably about 1995, and I was at Stonely Bible Week, and there was a solar eclipse, and we stood outside, and we were having to put sunglasses on, these special kind of 3D style glasses things that they weren't, but they helped us to look at the eclipse without being blinded. I want you to think of the type of light that's so bright that you can't look directly at it without it burning your retina and you start seeing that light everywhere you go. Have you had that before? My father-in-law has got a mag light that could literally burn your face off if it's turned on to full strength. Now, (laughs) the greatest light that we can probably think of is the sun, isn't it? We're taught from an early age never to look directly at it. Think of this. How far away is the sun? How far away is the sun? It's, it's 93 million miles away. 93 million miles away. I read this, that it would take you 19 years to fly to the sun in a jumbo jet, if that were even possible. You can imagine, can't you? You'd get within a certain distance and uh, it would all start going awry, wouldn't it? Flames start melting. Um, but yet the light from the sun is so strong, isn't it, that it can be seen right across the solar system even beyond Pluto, which now isn't a planet, apparently. They've declassified it, haven't they? But when I was a kid, Pluto was a planet. So the sun's power is so strong, its light is so powerful, that it literally dictates the pattern of life on Earth. It dictates when we wake up. If you're anyone else but Jamie, Jamie wakes up when he likes. But the sun, for most of us, gets us up at a certain time in the morning, and we go to bed at a certain time of night. It creates so much power that when we harness that power, it becomes energy. We can create fuel and power for our our, uh, homes and for our businesses through the light of the sun. It creates so much heat as a star that it can actually burn our skin from 93 million miles away. Isn't that incredible? But yet, even the light of the sun is polluted. Even the light of the sun has its limits. Even the sun itself has what we call sunspots, dark spots on its surface. Even its light eventually tails off the further you get away out into the Milky Way. But in God, there is no darkness. God is a light which is pure, it's perfect, it's holy, it's without any decay at all, it's without any blemish or darkness or anything that might diffuse the power of it. As Paul wrote, God dwells in unapproachable light. This is altogether other than any light that we know of. A light so strong that finite eyes can't look at it, that mortal bodies can't approach it, that sinful human flesh cannot stand in its presence. You see, to the children of God, his light is entrancing. It's beautiful. It's something to be studied. It's something to be gloried in. But to the sinner, to the one who does not know God, God's light is terrible. 
is an inescapable horror. What does John mean to us by saying that God is light? Charles Hodge, the 18th century theologian, said this. He said, light is pure. Light is pure. It cannot be defiled. So it's the fit emblem of holiness. Holiness. God is absolute holiness. To me, this truth of God's holiness is the most precious and the most treasured thing about God. He's pure. Absolutely pure. And I don't know anything else like that in my life. Everything that I am, even my good deeds, are defiled by some kind of darkness. Every good work I do is undermined by some kind of impure motive. Do you catch my drift? Even the good that we do, we do through impure motives. But God is not like that. As we sing in the hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning in him. He is immutable. He doesn't change. There are no impure motives in God. You see, there's no one like our God in all creation. And it's his absolute holiness that is his glory, that is the light that John is speaking of. And it's his holiness above every other attribute that's sung about in heaven as well, isn't it? Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, we read in Revelation chapter 4. Full of eyes in front and behind, imagine that. There's going to be some serious creatures in heaven. Eyes on fr- in front and back. Incredible. Seven, the first, sorry, the first like a living creature, like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Good grief. I'm glad I'm not preaching that passage today. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. None, this is a quote from Stephen Charnock, another um commentator he says none is sounded out so loftily with such solemnity and so frequently by angels that stand before his throne as this where do you find any other attribute trebled in the praises of it as this holy 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 as we've just read his power of sovereignty as the lord of hosts is but once mentioned but with eternal reputation of his holiness again he says this holiness is a glorious perfection belonging to the nature of god Hence he is in scripture styled often as the Holy One, the Holy One of Jacob, the Holy One of Israel, and often are entitled holier, sorry, holy than almighty, and set forth by this part of his dignity more than by any other. This is more affixed as an epithet to his name than any other. You never find it expressed his mighty name or his wise name or his great name and most of all, than most of all, his holy name. This is the greatest title of honour. In this does the majesty and venerableness of his name appear. The holiness of God is his glory, as his grace is his riches. Holiness is his crown, and his mercy is his treasure. Jonathan Edwards said this, He that sees the beauty of holiness sees the greatest and most important thing in the world. Unless this is seen, nothing is seen that's worth seeing. Holiness is the chosen attribute that God takes to display himself. God is keen that we should know that he's holy. And as children of God, I think often we come to to love his holiness over time. 
It's something that we really come to adore. We want to imitate his holiness. We allow his holy light to shine on us, don't we, and expose some of the darkness in us. We actually glory not only in the positive side of God's holiness, that he loves all things that are pure, but also that because of his holiness, he necessarily hates all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That's Romans 1 verse 18. I think that's the true sign of a believer. If we could not only love God in the fact that he's pure and loves all things that are good, but also that we can approve of and love the fact that he hates sin. I think that's the true sign of a believer, that we don't take away God's freedom to be able to hate sin with a perfect hatred, just as he loves righteousness with a perfect love. We agree with all of God's judgments. We praise him in them, even when they don't agree with us. Whereas a false believer loves God and his mercy, they delight in his love, but they hate God's holiness. They hate that they can't control it. It doesn't fit with their own ideas about what or who God should do or how he should act. They hate God's freedom in his holiness. God's absolute freedom to exercise his holiness, to make judgments without recourse to anybody's free will. The false believer wants to make God all love and just a little less than holy. Stephen Charnock again said, There are some attributes of God that we prefer because of our interest in them and the relation that they bear to us. We esteem his goodness before his power, his mercy whereby he relieves us, before his justice whereby he punishes us. The God, said A.W. Pink, which the vast majority of professing Christians love, is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man, who himself has got no relish for folly, but leniently winks at the indiscretions of youth. But the word says, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. And again, God is angry with the wicked every day. But men refuse to believe in this God and gnash their teeth when his hatred of sin is faithfully pressed upon their attention. No sinful man was ever more likely to devise a holy God than to create the lake of fire in which they will be tormented forever and ever. That's A.W. Pink. Strong stuff, isn't it? You imagine getting somebody like that to come and preach at a church these days? I don't think so. God is light. God is holy. God dwells in that light. He alone can live in it. It's only through Christ Jesus that we can be brought into that kind of a, a glory and a holiness. Because nothing other than perfection can stand in the face of perfection. But what John does tell us in these verses is that though we may not be able to dwell in that light until we go to be with God eternally, what we all call to do is to walk in that light. God dwells in it. God dwells in holiness, but we are to walk out our journey through life in light. Now it's worth saying that I don't think Paul's saying that every Christian is going to be able to perfectly walk out their life in holiness without sin. I think he's saying something more like this, that if our conscience is given to ordering our steps according to holiness, according to the word of God, trying to please him in what we do and beginning to do what he does which is love the good things in life love righteousness and hate sin I think this is the type of walking that John is talking about 
He wants us to walk on two legs, truth and holiness, together, step by step. And that's how we please God. And according to John, that's how we have fellowship with one another as well. He says if we do this, if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. Or even better in the original language, we don't do the truth. You see, that that was something that I think sometimes we've lost these days in the church is that we may believe the truth, perhaps we don't actually walk the truth out. In Hebrew thought, knowing the truth was living the truth. It was doing the truth. And that's what we're called to do is not just know about who God is, but walk in that knowledge and live it out. To walk in darkness is simply this, to walk hiding our path from God, keeping certain parts of our life hidden. There are many preachers and teachers and so-called Christians in the UK today that do just that. They will stand behind a pulpit or behind a music stand just like I am today and maybe they'll say many things that are true. But their life and their walk will be hidden from God and hidden from brothers and sisters. There'll be people in their church who don't truly know them, who don't know their path and don't know their walk. And that's something that they have they have become the architect of. They don't want to walk in the light with believers. One of the truest ways I think that we can be sure that we're walking in the light is if we will allow brothers and sisters to actually take a look into our walk with us and be honest about where we're up to. That's what we've got to practice, I think, as a church, as Hope City Church, is to have that kind of unity where we will walk together and I will let you see my walk and my journey, even the difficult bits and the bits where you see brokenness. And in, in that, hopefully you'll allow me to see your walk and together perhaps we can encourage one another to walk in the light because you know I'm not perfect. You know my walk doesn't look pure all the way just as I know yours is the same. As long as our consciences are directed to ordering our lives according to the word of God, according to truth and according to holiness, I think this is the type of life that God will honour. This is the kind of life that will bring us together in koinonia. The cleansing from sin happens as we do the walk. That's one thing I'm going to finish on here is that he says, if we do this, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You see, the blood of Jesus doesn't just cleanse us at the moment where we come to Christ and we give our faith to him and we put our life into his life. That's not just the only moment when the blood of Jesus actually does something. His blood doesn't just deal with our sins up to conversion, does it? It's not like once we have prayed the prayer that those sins before we do that have been dealt with, but after that, well, now that's going to be up to you. You're going to need to make sure you live perfectly. You're going to need to go to church every Sunday. Maybe, like the Catholic Church teaches, you're going to need to do penance. You're going to need to go to Mass. You're going to need to do all these works to make sure those future sins are dealt with. Well, actually, no. Jesus' blood cleanses our past, our future, and our present. And it's through this walking in the light that the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' blood and nothing else, only his blood, 
that we are cleansed day by day. As one of my favorite hymns goes, I think it's from Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Let's glory in God's holiness. Let's give thanks to him for his absolute moral perfection. Let's give thanks and worship him that he loves all good things and he hates all mixture and evil. And as we do that, let's encourage one another to live and walk in that light. Not to be scared of having our lives exposed to his truth, but willingly embracing that truth, even when it cuts, even when it feels uncomfortable. Let's have our lives ordered by a pursuit of holiness and let's be open and honest with one another about our walk with God. In so doing, I believe God is going to bring about a powerful fellowship and connection between us built upon that vulnerability and that openness. Light keeps no secrets. Amen. Let's pray. And then I'm going to invite you just in small huddles with umbrellas, if you'd like, to just share with one another perhaps some of your journey, some of where you're up to. What are you currently feeling God's light shining on? Is it uncomfortable? Are the things he's revealing that perhaps you realize, I'm going to need help in this area? Let's talk to one another about that and perhaps just get a little bit of prayer uh, for some of those things. So I'll pray and then please do just gather in threes and fours and, and do that. Father, we thank you for this word and we thank you that you are light in a way that we can never conceive of. You're brighter than the sun. You're brighter than any star in the entire universe. There is no shadow of turning in you. You are perfect, absolutely morally perfect. And God, there is nothing that we could do in and of our broken, sinful selves that could ever justify ourselves before a holy God. So God, we thank you that it's today that we approach you with an open hand of faith. An open hand of faith that relies on nothing else but your grace to save us and to know you. And Lord, we glory in your holiness. We thank you for your purity. We thank you there's no one else like you. And that as we walk with you, the dark paths of our lives get exposed to beautiful light. We see things in your glory, in your holiness. And we're led in paths of righteousness forevermore. Amen. Amen.